Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. In the scriptures, Isaiah 56, the first reading for the 20th Sunday of Ordinary Time, God says that he wants his house, his temple, to be, quote, a house of prayer for all nations, end quote. And even the psalm for this Sunday picks up on this, the universal call to holiness that comes through the people of Israel. And so the psalm says, O God, let all the nations praise you. May the nations be glad and exult because you rule the peoples in equity, the nations on the earth you guide. O God, let all the nations praise you. May the peoples praise you. O God, may all the peoples praise you. May God bless us. May all the ends of the earth fear him. O God, let all the nations praise you. You know that understanding that the holiness of Israel fulfills the blessing of Abraham on all nations. This is at the core of the scriptures. So how is it that in Jesus' time, Israel had gotten so inward looking? Uh, How is it that Catholics can get so inward looking? You know, we can see it in other communities, but do we see it in ourselves? Our desire to bring people to God. And what I would suggest is it's our pursuit of holiness that ignites our evangelical spirit. Um, You know, love is important in the gospel. The two, two greatest commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. But most of his preaching is about the kingdom of God. How do you bring people into the kingdom? And so on the the scriptures, this idea of the kingdom of God. It's not only in Isaiah 56, which is the first reading that I quoted, which I will say again, even though I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But it's also repeated in Jeremiah chapter 7. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the backdrop to the Lord's cleansing of the temple because it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. And he claims, rightfully so, um, that it's become not a house of prayer but a den of robbers. Jesus is pretty hard on the people of Israel of his own time. But you know, when we squelch the evangelical spirit in each of us, uh, Jesus' command at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to go out and make disciples of all nations, you have to ask, where is that coming from in the Catholic community? Because in the Gospel today, Jesus reaches out to a Canaanite woman. Um, He calls her a, quote, dog, end quote. A dog is an unclean animal. You can't use it for anything in the Old Testament. Let's explore the story of, uh, of the uncleanness of the human race, not just of all of us of a Gentile background, but how it is that we've experienced this blessing from God and how we might be a conduit that God's blessing goes out to the world. So stay tuned for more. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to uh, tune in to any of the first three seasons of The Chosen. 
it's a story. It it's actually stars a very devout Catholic man, Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, and it's a very touching Jesus. But it's really an inter-Christian effort. Uh, I believe that the, the, the producers and directors are evangelical Christians, and everyone's always interested in how the story of Jesus is told through the lens of the various fractures in the Christian community. But one thing it captures, actually two things. First, why you'd be attracted to Jesus, because the Jesus that uh, Mr. Rumi portrays is a wonderfully attractive figure. Uh, there are boundaries, there are rules, uh, God is a God of judgment, um, but his mercy, his desire to heal his people, this is what has really been emphasized in these first three seasons of The Chosen. But you also get, especially in season three, the problem of the relationship between Jew and Gentiles, between St. Peter and a Roman centurion, and the kind of uh, arm's length relationship between the two, or Jesus' trip into the Decapolis, where the gospel is set Jew against a Gentile. And so that story of the, the chosen, and at least by the third season, has really captured something very important about the dynamic between first century Judaism and the Gentiles uh, surrounding them in the Mediterranean world. You know, modern Judaism is a very fractured movement, just like modern Christianity is. I think the best way to look at Judaism and Christianity is out of all the parties that fought with each other in the first century, two uh, really emerged uh, as carrying forward the banner of the Old Testament. And one is uh, rabbinic Judaism, and in its present form, that is uh, basically from the ultra-Orthodox um, to the Reformed. And they don't obviously agree on everything. It's one of the tensions in modern-day Israel is religious tensions amongst Jews, just like it was in the first century. Faith is supposed to bring us together, but apparently at all levels it divides us. But you know, we're experiencing the same thing in the Christian community, right? From ultra-fundamentalist Christians who take everything literally, apparently, uh, to, uh, you know, the uh, the Catholic faith, the Orthodox faith, and the, those way out on the margins the other way, where um, pretty much Jesus uh, gives, you know, good advice, which you can take or leave. And you can practice the faith on your own. You really don't need the church. These are all, the, at least, the different flavors of, Christ, of Christianity and, I think, Catholicism as I understand them. Um, but that's not the call of God. There is something that isn't right uh, about this response, especially of Christianity uh, to the world. So in the first reading from the 20th Sunday of Ordinary Time, it's Isaiah 56, and it's the one that I had previously read, but I want to focus on some elements there that are part of that reading. First, it really does center around God's holy mountain, the, the, the temple. Why? Because in the time that Isaiah is writing, which is uh, because Isaiah is a school of prophets, maybe over two to three hundred years, um, they're all writing about the temple in Jerusalem uh, as the center of, uh, of the navel of the world. There was a Jewish legend that says that the rock which uh, juts up now the Al-Aqsa Mosque was really the rock that Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac on, that it's the point from where God made the world. It is what 
in other religious faiths, what they would call the navel of the world. And so all people were being called back to Mount Zion because it's the source of uh, where, where we get our uh, source of being, our creation. And so that bringing people back to the original unity of human beings in Isaiah, which is, of course, the story of the, the first and second um, chapters of Genesis, uh, it's the prophecy of a future age of salvation. For St. Paul and the church, that future age has already started in Christ. And so the old world and the world that Christ has brought are overlapping. And uh, part of the evidence of it is here in Isaiah 56, where uh, at the end of the reading, if you remember, it said that the sacrifices of the Gentiles would be acceptable in the Jewish temple. And I'm just putting it into plain text. But that the idea is, and he says it elsewhere also, that God will choose from among the Gentiles uh, ministers as priests. Because, you know, the priest in the Catholic Church is Jesus. And that every Catholic priest, Orthodox priest, ministers in persona Christi. Because really there's just the one priest. But for the Jewish people, the priests came out of uh, the Levites. And depending on what part of history, because the how the Jewish people think about priesthood is just as varied as, as kind of the forms of Judaism from the first century. But the Mushite priests were the ones that claimed their, that their lineage went all the way back to Moses. Mush is a Moses in, I believe, Hebrew. And so the Mushite priests uh, claimed that uh, their priesthood went back to the time of Moses. But that's the very priesthood that Solomon suppressed when he became king after King David. So the idea that the priesthood was in some sense failing, that in the Jewish world, by the time he got to the first century, um, they just had situations where the highest bidder was able to buy the temple and run it. And that's why Jesus calls it a den of robbers, that when you purchase the, the uh, office of high priest, as especially happened during the time of the Maccabees, it was part of the the great revolt of the Maccabees, um, that uh, the sanctity of the priesthood had been lost. Um, and so uh, Jesus wasn't simply referring, I think, when he cleansed the temple to the corruptions of first century Judaism, but he was talking about how Judaism, how the, the religion of Israel had imploded over the centuries and that uh, God's promise that the temple would be a house of prayer for all peoples is fulfilled in the temple of Christ's body. Because uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are called to be part of the temple of Christ. And so that is what's behind all of this story in the gospel. Um, it's the story of uh, Israel, how the priesthood had fallen apart, even the temple, you know, uh, the second temple destroyed uh, some 30 years or more after Jesus' death. And what uh, remains from our Christian perspective is that the temple goes on with the high priest Jesus and the sacrifice, all is offered as the sacrifice of Christ. It's a powerful story. For Judaism, uh, it's, it's a wounded religion. Um, it calls for temple sacrifice in Leviticus, but there hasn't been sacrifice on Mount Zion in 2,000 years. And so how is this all going to be resolved? Well, 
the Jewish people are the chosen people. God does, uh, is a God that keeps his promises. And that somehow, as we look at all of the fractures of the world, um, that it's all going to be brought together in the mercy of God. This is Catholic faith. All of this is present in Matthew 15 and the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman. So Jesus is outside of Galilee and Judea, and he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is north of Mount Carmel in what you and I think of as Lebanon. They're Gentile cities, and at least their background has been Phoenician, though they too are under Roman rule. And while he's there, a Canaanite woman um, uh, comes to see him. Now, Sidon is the firstborn son of Canaan. And Canaan goes back um, to uh, the story of Noah. And so Sidon is uh, this biblical name um, that goes back uh, beyond Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Canaanites had become pagan peoples. And so in the pagan religions, it was basically about how do you buy off God? And that's kind of the default position for people in religion. Catholics can fall into this trap. And it's um, buy off God to get what you want. And so what it leads is to idolatry, which is making something less than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the center of your reality. And it can be almost anything in life can be made an idol. But the problem of paganism is the problem of idolatry that's disconnected from a moral life in union with God. And so for the Canaanites, they worshiped Baal, which worshiped Baal, Baal being a Canaanite word for God. Um, but uh, it's not the name of a god. It's just the designation for a male god. So it could have been Baal Zevul, which is where we get the name Bezabul. Um, it could be Baal Hadam. Uh, but uh, God of the storms. And so this woman who is foreign to the people of Israel, she is unclean. Um, she comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She shows her respect to God um, and to the, to the Messiah when she refers to Jesus as the son of David. So very few people in the New Testament are willing to do that. And in response, what does he do? Um, same thing that God does for most of us. He does not answer her a word. There is silence. Why? And we're going to talk about that in the third section because it's how to understand God's silence in our own life. And then um, the disciples say, send her away. She's a pest. And then Jesus says that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is the fulfillment of the prophecy God made um, that uh, all of Israel would come together again. And remember the lost tribes um, that were conquered by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC, that uh, they are not forgotten uh, by God. Although by the time Jesus is in Sidon, that's well almost uh, eight centuries ago. Um, then uh, she came and knelt before him. And the word that's used in Greek is worship. You know, and worship is when you touch your face to the ground. This is worship in the ancient world. It's where we get our genuflections and kneelings from, though we don't touch our face to the ground. But you can see that in our brothers of the Muslim faith who worship with their faces to the ground. You dare not look at God. We kneel and look at God because of who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. 
but it's really the same attitude, the same physical attitude of worship for God. And then she prays the prayer that God will not refuse. Lord, help me, because he cannot not answer that prayer. The question is whether you're awake enough to understand when help arrives. And so that Jesus gives her another response, which we're going to comment on in the third part of this podcast. He says, you don't feed the dogs before the children. In short, Jesus is supposed to go to the chosen people first and then to the Gentiles. And this is the movement in the early church. When Paul and Peter go out, they always go to the synagogues. They always preach to the Jewish people first because this is what Jesus told them to do. And when the Jewish people throw them out, but not always, some end up becoming uh, Christians and follow. Uh, Then they go out to the Gentiles. Um, It's the basic order of business And now the church will talk to basically anybody uh, who wants to hear the word of God. And so uh, when Jesus is referring to the children, he's referring not to us. He's referring uh, to the Jews. We become children of God through our baptism. When he's referring to the dogs, that is an unclean animal under Jewish dietary law. It's uh, uh, just not an animal that you will eat, And so uh, the Gentiles are considered sinners, are considered unfit. But as you remember, uh, because it's a wonderful response, she says, uh, Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps from the master's table uh, because she will not be put off because she trusts who God is, that she was made for God. And that's when Jesus responds and says, great is your faith. And uh, this woman's daughter was healed instantly. And so John Chrysostom, who was a 4th century preacher in Constantinople and had his own struggles, he said that when the disciples entreated the Lord to put her off, and when the woman herself cried out begging for this favor, he granted it. And at the beginning, when she first made a request, he did not answer. But after she had come to him once, twice, a third time, he gave her what she desired because his silence was, was designed to draw her out, to whet her appetite for union with God. Now, let's think about that some more in the third section of Oral Valley Catholic. So why does Jesus answer these women's initial pleas with silence? Why does Jesus sign that when we pray? Jesus is drawing us out of ourselves uh, so that we might enter more deeply into his presence within us. That's an interesting way to think about it. So let's stop and think about how our spirituality and, uh, and personal prayer is rooted in the scripture. So do you remember the part where the woman comes before Jesus and bows down before him? and says, Lord, have mercy. Do you remember that all the Gospels are written uh, in Greek? Uh, Matthew may have been originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but it's found itself into Greek, and that's really the only copy of Matthew we have is Greek and then all the translations from the Greek. But when the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman, kneels down before Jesus, what she says is, Kyrie eleison, which is exactly how we start out Mass. You know, Much of Mass is drawn out of the Gospels in the Old Testament, 
Glory is glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. It's the song of the angels at Jesus' birth. Um, and you can go through uh, uh, all the other parts like, Lord, I am not worthy to, that you should come under my roof, but only say the word, my soul shall be healed. It's the centurion's prayer. And so when we start out Mass and we sing the Kyrie, uh, it is drawn from this woman's testimony of Lord have mercy as she kneels before Jesus. You know, the other thing to remember about all of this and Jesus' interaction with the Gentiles, which happens a few times in Matthew's Gospel, although predominantly he reaches out to the Jewish people. At the end of the Gospel, Jesus is going to fulfill Isaiah 56 by telling his disciples to go out and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so there is this outward movement. But to understand the entirety of the Gospels, you have to understand that Jesus descends from heaven, lives amongst us, then ascends to heaven. So for God, it's the image of going out and then returning back to the Father. So in our evangelization, it's going out and returning. Now think about this in the context of the spiritual life. How do you think or characterize your journey to God? When you look at your struggles and the blessings that you have, and you're trying to orient yourself to where you are in life, what's the image that you have? You know, most of the scriptural images we have are the going out and the coming back. So for instance, um, the people of Israel, when they escape from Pharaoh in uh, Egypt, they go out from Egypt because they're going to return back to their homeland from 300 years before, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a home that they never knew. But God was leading them through the Red Sea and through the dangers of the desert. And it was a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. He fed them with manna and quail because he's going to provide for them food for the journey which often enough is how we think of viaticum and the last time we receive Eucharist before we die. That's what viaticum is, the last reception of Eucharist. But when you think about it, you're thinking about um, your journey to God starting here, and then you're going to meet God at the end of the journey. And there is truth in that, and that's very much uh, expressed in some of these images that we, that we have. Um, it's, you can have an image of going to God as ascending the mountain of the Lord. And that's behind Isaiah 56, isn't it? As Jesus reaches out to Jew and Gentile uh, to bring them to the mount of the Lord. But what I want to suggest to you is that the story of uh, this Gentile woman uh, in Tyre and Sidon expresses a truth that was expressed by St. Teresa of Avila in her book, The Interior Castle. So let me see if I can put this uh, simply because it's a beautiful book and I'm trying to just kind of boil it down into uh, cliff notes. The shortcoming of the image and all of our ways that we describe the journey to God are all gonna be inadequate. So that's not a criticism, it's just an observation about human language. That we're leaving slavery to go into freedom with God, it's true but it's a limited way of understanding it. We're ascending the mountain to God, it's true, but it's a limited way of understanding it. Um, what's limited about it? 
because it can make us feel like we're separated from God and that we're trying to overcome this separation by cooperation with the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. And there's truth in that, but there's an inadequacy in it. So here's how St. Teresa of Avila talks about it. And it doesn't uh, contradict anything that's said in the scriptures, but it's a reason to think of why you pray and why God's silence plays a role in your prayer. So in the interior castle, Teresa talks about her experience of um, spiritual life. She writes the interior castle, and I think it's the last of her books, and she wrote it about four years before she died. And it's interesting because she kind of is thinking things through as she writes this book. But the idea of the interior castle is it's this big crystal castle, about seven rooms that are all about prayer, overcoming sin, becoming closer to God. Um, and it really is at the heart of, of the Christian life. But this is the big difference between how Teresa thinks about the spiritual life and some of these other images that I've given you. Once you enter the castle through baptism, um, God's already there. You've already arrived. The problem is, is all the things in our life that get between us and the awareness of God in our life. And so for Teresa, overcoming sin is, is fundamental, right? Because if you imagine that you are moving to the interior castle where God is present in all the rooms, but he is also present, especially the human mind and body in the center, the seventh chamber. If God's already there, what's happening in the spiritual life is God is cleansing us. It's the purgative way. Um, he's cleansing us from all of this stuff that's on the periphery that keeps distracting us from God. All our fears, all our inadequacies, all the lusts and pleasures and calls of the world that keep us away from God. And so in the interior castle, mortifications are part of the, uh, the purgative way. How it is that you don't allow all of this peripheral stuff in our life dominate your conversation with God. And so it's how you get past uh, grave sin, venial sins, all the impurities and the distractions of sin so that you can start entering into a deeper relationship with God and you experience that, according to St. Teresa of Avila, on these different steps of the way with God's presence in your life, um, com consolations that God sends you from time to time, but ultimately in silence, because it's in silence that God makes himself uh, present to us, where we become aware of his presence that's already there in us. And so that the journey is really as much uh, getting past all of the stuff that gets between us and God until we can experience union with God. And Teresa says that union with God is experienced when you and I want what God wants. Um, this woman, she wants things because she loves her daughter. Uh, she loves her child. Um, Jesus loves her child more than her. What is silence? Is because if you look at all the stages where she uh, cries out, 
uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. That, that very final thing that she says, which is, Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps from the table. She's seeing God's presence and God's mercy, even for the unclean. Um, I think that for us, we can get confused. Um, we think that God loves the saint more than he loves the sinner. Um, and maybe it's the better way to look at it is that we see the beauty of God's love in the saint much more than we see the beauty and mercy of God's forbearance in the sinner. But it's the same love. And to see that people, especially when you get discouraged with the world around you, do you just see the wickedness of it? Or do you see the mercy of God operative, giving people a chance to discover and come to uh, peace with the presence of God in their life? So, um, Jesus to the Gentiles. The journey through the desert, sure. Uh, climbing the mountain of the Lord, yes. Um, but at the end, uh, what St. Teresa of Avila, sa Avila says, um, it's already recognizing that God's presence amongst, is amongst us. And so here is an unclean woman. She's not a saint, but she gets who Jesus is, the God present to Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner. Uh, God is a God of mercy. And we need to follow that through as we think about all our concerns about the world. And is the wickedness of the world really what undermines God? Or is it our fear, the distractions that we have as we try to fit God's world into ours instead of experiencing that if God permits this to happen, it must please his divine will. And so for us to play our role. And what's our role? That we remind people that God goes out to saint and sinner and that our job of evangelization is helping people to listen to who they are before God and his presence within them. Because everyone, baptized and not baptized, made in the image and likeness of God to enter God's house of prayer is to enter the interior castle and come to an awareness of his presence in us. That is what will change our lives. So this has been another issue of Oral Valley Catholic, another episode. Give me a like if this helped you, and may God bless you in all the days to come.